Okay? We ready ah? Okay, one, two, three. Welcome back to Something Private. A podcast about everything related to the vagina. From sex to health and the society. My name is Nicole and I am your producer and host. Just a week ago, a man in Singapore was charged in court for something he had said out of anger on social media. He said, and I quote, To the dead-ass boomer of a judge who dismissed the challenges against 377A, you better fucking watch out. And also, homophobic judges need to be put down immediately. Sounds like angry words, but honestly, also sounds like a bunch of words that you and I might have maybe accidentally slipped out on social media if it was an instance where we had felt angry and emotional over as well. If convicted, this man could face jail time of a year to five years, fined up to $5,000 or both. Crazy, right? All this because he did not know the severity of contempt of court. The moral of the story is that I don't think average citizens like you and I are quite aware of our legal and constitutional rights, specifically with regards to cases of sexual abuse and harassment. There's been a lot of anger around some very high-profile sexual abuse and harassment cases in the last two to five years, and in the age of social media, a lot of us have gone online to express our frustrations. On this episode, I get the help of Priscilla, a good friend and lawyer, to educate us on our rights, with regards to what to do when you or a loved one faces harassment and also to discuss the verdicts of these cases which I'm sure some of you would also feel were incredibly unjust. I'm Priscilla, I am a lawyer and I've also been volunteering with AWARE at their sexual assault care centre for about five years now. I've learned a lot in my volunteer experience about the difficulties that victims and survivors go through on a daily basis. There are a lot of, I suppose, myths about survivors and victims that are starting to be discussed now. Mm. You see a lot more steps being taken to address and to protect them. You see a lot of their needs becoming more recognised and tackled via legislative reforms. Maybe what I can do is to start off with explaining what rights individuals like us have if we are in a situation where we face harassment or abuse? Mm. So I think it's very specific to the type of situation that you face. So for example, if you are facing a situation where you are being sexually harassed, for example, via text messages, uh, WhatsApp and so on and so forth by a particular perpetrator, there are several remedies that you can't obtain to kind of prevent and to stop uh, such harassment. Mm. So this is what we know we know as a protection order under the Protection from Harassment Act, mm. uh, whereby when you're in that situation, you take a protection order against that perpetrator to stop that perpetrator, for example, from communicating with you at all, be it verbally or physical communications, no coming near, near to me, to kind of address and to prevent any further harassing behaviour. If that person continues to do so, then there are um, liabilities if you breach that court order. About the protection order, how does one Mm. obtain it? Um, Actually, you don't need a lawyer. And I always emphasize that because I think people feel like when you go to the court, 
court. Yeah. Um, you always need a lawyer. Yeah. But no, um, it's very common for litigant in person, i.e. when you're not represented by a lawyer, to actually file for protection orders. Mm. So um, it's like, I, I like to call it like a form feeling exercise, whereby you basically state what happened. Why is there a need for you to apply for such an order? Then you will also try to put in like whatever evidence that you have. For example, um, if you are being harassed by someone, then you'll put in all the contacts of the WhatsApp messages, mm. any um, source of harassment. Maybe he or she published certain information of you online and then you will share like the screenshot of those in this form. And then you will file it in court. Typically, in such situations, you also want to file what we call an expedited protection order, mm. i.e. it comes into effect almost immediately and you're looking at between probably 48 hours to 72 hours when you get a hearing to kind of explain why you need this type of expedited order. And then based on what you tell the judge, based on how the judge assesses uh, your mm. case, then the judge might on the spot um, grant you the order. They might so The judge might order a very specific type. For example, um, if you are... Like physical harassment mm. or stalking, then you have we will have an order that specifically prevents that person from coming near to you and things like that. So it is quite flexible and broad, mm. so that um, the order can address the exact situation that you are in. Upon that person receiving that order, um, that order takes effect immediately. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of questions. Yes. The first okay, yes. let's go with the first yeah. thing and the most obvious one is. Does it cost money? Yes, it does, but it's not exorbitant. So you're really looking at like administrative fees of maybe $100, $200, not very sure. There is a... So if you Google online, you'll be able to find the charges mm. of how uh, the following charges. Then there may be situations where, you know, like the victim or like the person suffering the harassment yeah. does not know the exact person who's doing it or, you know, are facing like, let's say, especially if it's like an online kind of case, right? If it's like a group of people who started like a chat and then started to like spread images or like, you know, like send unsolicited photos to that individual. And let's say they're, they're hiding behind like an anonymity. What can somebody do in that situation? How does the, how does the act help well, them in this? Um, I suppose in some sense, uh, you do kind of need to identify who that person is mm. um, or who you suspect that person to be. I, I think I would say that in a telegram type situation, I think the most obvious recourse would be to still go to the police. Mm. And then I think uh, what you can do is, after you have the uh, court order, what you can do is to approach the intermediaries, for example, telegram, their mm. offices in Singapore, or their head headquarters, wherever they are, to let them know that this offending uh, communications uh, about you is a subject of the court order and request that they remove and take down. Mm. Yeah. With the idea of like a protection order, yes. to some people it can be very like daunting. Yeah. So is this the only official way we can protect ourselves in a situation where we get harassed? Yes, unfortunately, I think this would be the most immediate way that, or the most immediate relief that a or survivor most effective yeah mm. yeah other than that there are no kind of in-betweens I mean I guess to sum it up yes the best option for somebody who may be facing abuse or harassment yeah or if you are, if you know somebody who's facing abuse or harassment the best advice you can give them is 
if they are in a very distressing situation to go and apply for a protection order yes. but also to be able to first identify who is causing harm to them and then have like evidence to show that you know this is indeed happening yeah right I suppose I would also add that when you are in that position you are it's really a very isolating experience and what you should also be thinking of if possible is can I find a support mm. are there um a trusted friend that I can talk to who can support me in this process. There are befriender services out there, so AWARE provides one of them. Mm. You need to realise that you don't have to be alone in this process, that there are support systems out there who can be by your side and walk you through that process as well. Okay, let's go on to police reporting. Sure. Maybe we can talk about what the process is, mm. is like and in what situation would it be considered severe enough to make a police report. Yeah. Right, so maybe what I will start is by sharing kind of a the the common dilemmas that I hear mm. from victims and survivors about police reporting. Um, they are often kind of undecided as to whether or not they should make the police reporting and often they feel a certain pressure from maybe someone they loved, a trusted friend, who inadvertently, out of good intentions, mm. cause pressure on the survivor to make a police report. It's very, very important to remember that there is no correct or wrong decision. Mm. It is a decision that is the best for you at that particular moment. As someone who is supporting a per uh, another friend who is experiencing such distress, be very mindful about how you communicate the type of route that you think your friend or whoever um, should pursue. So, for example, things like saying, you should go to the police. Mm. Change it to whatever support or whatever decision that you make, I will be there to support you. So, just be very conscious about the fact that your words can have indirect pressure on the person going through that distress, mm. um, distressing experience. Mm. But in terms of the reporting itself, essentially you would go down to a police station. You can file your police report online as well. If you are, if you have a SingPass, you can do that online. But essentially what would happen is the police would kind of do an interview with you to find out what is going on. So sometimes some survivors share that they prefer to prepare a statement before they even go to the police because that helps them to kind of be very clear be able to think through what exactly happened. It also helps them to kind of consider are there available evidence for them. For example, after the aftermath of what ha happened, sometimes text messages are exchanged about what happened. Hmm. Um, otherwise, what would happen is basically it would be generally a face-to-face -face interview with the police where they'll ask you questions about what happened. Sometimes they might ask you to do a lie detector test, hmm. uh, but you're not obliged to do so if you don't want to. Hmm. Um, anyway, those evidence from a lie detector test is not uh, cannot be used in court. Mm. But that is, I suppose, a way in which the police kind of assess your credibility, mm. your story. That's interesting. I didn't know yeah. that the lie detector test couldn't be used in, yeah. in court. That is the main thing a lot of survivors are worried about because they share their concerns with, about not being believed. Yep. 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 And there is a fear that people will not believe them. Mm. 
for the, what has happened. Mm. Sometimes you have multiple IOs, investigating officers, so you might also have to kind of reshare mm-hmm. um, yeah. details about what happened. Yeah. So I suppose in that context, there are a lot of considerations um, that uh, a survivor takes into account before taking that step forward. It's really also not so easy to say, okay, I want to just make a police report. Because often you find that a lot of these police reports are made against people in very familiar relationship mm. in a family. Mm. So there are so many other emotional considerations like what happens if I make a report against my father? Would yeah. my mother turn against me? Would I even be able to continue to stay in this household? The problem doesn't just disappear or, or eliminates just because I make that police report. In fact, it can create a whole chain of other unforeseeable problems that I, I I wouldn't even have been able to contemplate, much less be able to know whether I can ever go through that whole process. Mm. After you take that statement, then basically the police will start investigating. And that investigation process um, takes a while. Sometimes there are CCTV footage that the police would have to retrieve. They would obviously also need to interview the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator. They might also need to follow up and do their own investigation too. Sometimes they have communicative devices Mm. um, that they will need to uh, apply certain forensic investigations uh, to those. So that process can take a few months up to a year. Mm. It really, really depends also on how complex that case is. Once that investigation process completes, there would be either three main outcomes, actually. Um, First, the police might decide they close the case. Mm. Nothing happens in the sense that there is just on record, there is a police report lodged and Mm. the police have decided to close the case. Is it because like they cannot find enough supporting evidence? There is, unfortunately... um, You are not, or the police is not obliged to kind of share with you why, but there are so many different considerations. Might not necessarily always be the absence of evidence as well. There might be, for example, perhaps the alleged perpetrator might be suffering from a certain Mm -hmm. abnormality of the mind. So, so many different considerations that are unknown to, 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 or you would not know about. They might instead issue a conditional warning. Yeah, so you would see that that would be um, the case for Nicholas, right? Yes. Monica's base case. Mm. Or they might decide to proceed to charge the offender as in like Terencell case. Mm, mm. So these are three main outcomes after a police reporting. Mm. So that process will take a while. Mm. And I suppose for anyone in that situation, you must also uh, consider the fact that it's a long time frame you will not be looking at a conclusion of the matter within months yeah. because other there are many different moving parts yep. which you will not be able to see. Mm. So I mean, with that in mind, I guess yes. it's quite important for somebody who's going through a difficult situation to report as soon as possible, right? It does not mean that because you don't report it immediately, therefore it ceases to become an offence. Mm. People justifiably have reasons why they take time to report. It can be as long as like five years. Because, for example, people don't know what happened to them yep. was an offence. The, there is no law that, that prohibits you from reporting mm. merely because the, a few years have lapsed. But what it would affect is the quality of the evidence because mm. after 10 years... Um, the evidence might disappear, no longer exist. The person might not even recall people mm. or 
people involved in that situation might not even remember what has happened. Mm. So there was this one girl who was, I think she wanted to report the case that happened to her and she what, what she wanted to do was to gather like evidence that this guy had done like whatever thing that he did to her to other girls as well. So yeah. I mean in a situation she came to ask me, she was like, you know, does this help my case? Does this make my case like stronger? Does it help to get him put away? What will help your case is what evidence you have vis-a-vis that person and what mm. he has done to you. Mm. Not so much what he has done to other people. And like how many? Yeah, I mean, um, that it's really not here, not there as to how whether or not he, act- he or she actually did yep. whatever to you. So it's it. I I think you put yourself at risk also when you try to look for this type of evidence, yep. and you don't want to put yourself in that situation when you're already in a relatively distressed position. I think the discomfort with a familiar setting is that you don't necessarily want to report that person for various reasons, and the problem is that. There is no in between. It's either you report or not. Yep. And sometimes reporting might make the situation even more, even even more dangerous or even worse than it is. Mm. Unfortunately, I think the law doesn't permit those in betweens. Mm. And by in betweens, I am also thinking outside of the box. In a sense, is there a possibility that there could be some form of a victim-offender mediation framework where we can adopt in dealing with uh, this type of situation where, as a victim, I do not necessarily want to escalate. Mm. For example, even in a workplace harassment situation, um, there are, for example, within your company, um, certain grievances processes which you can um, have or have an avenue to. You have the opportunity to kind of have the company be the middle person to mediate between uh, both parties. So I suppose I'm thinking, is there a possibility yeah. that this might um, be a, a, a way to deal with what has happened yeah. in a not very formal, legal manner? Correct. Because now, now what you're saying is that like we yeah. only have, I guess, like more or less two options, right? It's like, you don't pursue it. Correct. Like you bring this person to like Correct. court. It's like... Like two extremes, right? Yeah, and I suppose also it uh, puts a lot of burden or responsibility on the victim mm. to take that step forward. Mm. And I suppose we might want to start thinking about how we can share that responsibility together mm. so that it doesn't depend, accountability doesn't depend on the victim taking that step forward. Something Private is a podcast produced by VFM. Tune in to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcast. Also, if you want to get notified the second a new episode hits every Tuesday, make sure you subscribe to us on all the relevant podcasting platforms as well as social media to get notified the instant this voice hits the airwaves. If you've liked our content so far, do us a solid by sharing our episodes with your friends, your families, with your acquaintances on social media, and give us a tag and shout out at something private pod. That's something private pod, P O D. Or if you'd like to chat with me, 
send me your feedback, suggestions, or you just want to have a discussion, feel free to slide into my DMs as well or drop me an email at nicole at somethingprivate.fm. That's nicole at somethingprivate.fm. And I think, I mean, that quite naturally leads us to talking about the few cases that have sure. been going on, right? Because I mean, going about explaining the sentences first, maybe sure. so that people can understand sure. why certain things were done in a certain way. Yeah. A very famous one that has been um, everybody's mind, everybody was talking about, is the one with uh, the doctor. So what happened was he he was acquitted for rape charge. Yeah. But in the end, he was cleared of... He was cleared also of the acquittal right. of, of a rape. Outrage of modesty and digital penetration yep. charge. Yep. So I think it's very interesting because everybody was like, oh my God, how can it be that, you know, very clearly, and then they all like, they read whatever was on mainstream media, right? They were like, oh, very clearly this counts as rape, but like, why was he not charged for rape? So yeah, maybe you can talk a bit about how that gets. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's going to be a very lengthy. Uh, explanation. Okay. But in short, basically, um, there are two incidents actually that of which Dr. Wee's charge came about. The first one pertained to what happened in the clinic where Dr. Wee was alleged to have been stroking her private parts mm. uh, from which there was the outreach of modesty charge. Then there was a second incident of which the victim alleged and claimed that she was penetrated mm. by Dr. Wee and of which the rape charge came about. Mm. So we're actually speaking about two different incidents as opposed to just one incident. In in terms of the the charges, the rape charge, actually it really turned on, I think, two things. The first was the fact that um, the court found and accepted that at that point of time, the doctor was uh, was suffering from erectile mm. dysfunction, which meant that um, he could not perform the act which he was alleged to have performed. Mm. So that in is what we call in law raising a reasonable doubt as to whether that happened. And then the second, of course, um, is in respect of the court's assessment of the credibility of of mm. the victim's testimony, which the found uh, which the court found was not credible. Mm. And in, in a very legal language, typically in, in, in sexual offences cases, you are really looking at once um, he say, she say, she say, they say. So the court evaluates um, the witness testimony on this um, standard called the unusually convincing standard to test as to whether or not that person is what he or she is saying, is it consistent? What, he's, what, what she, he or she is saying consistent throughout? And whether or not there are other evidence that might suggest that the victim's evidence might not actually be true. Yep. So that is a relatively high threshold. Mm. And um, that is what the case turned on. Mm. Her credibility and the fact that there was medical evidence suggesting that mm. the doctor uh, was not able to perform the act that he was alleged to have performed. So that's why the rape charge was cleared? Correct. So that's why he was acquitted of the rape charge. Okay. Um, For the um, outrage of modesty, it turned on the victim's uh, credibility. Mm. They found that it it was hard to believe the victim's account that she didn't know what was happening to her was a case of outrage of modesty. Mm. And also there were significant delays in her reporting 
36 mm. days, I believe. Mm. So that was what why he was also acquitted of the outrage of modesty charge. Mm. I think uh, there were a lot of outcry also because the doctor himself admitted that he actually licked his fingers and put it into yeah. the victim's uh, private part. But in a typical situation, this would be a case of a digital penetration type of charge. But what happened was during the trial, only the outrage of modesty as well as the rape charges were proceeded. But mm-hmm. what happened at the conclusion of the trial was that the after everything was heard, the trial judge decided to exercise his discretion um, to frame a new charge of digital penetration, mm. which on appeal, the court agreed that it was very prejudicial for you to frame a new charge um, because then Dr. Wee would not have the opportunity to defend himself. Mm. He might have led a different type of defense if he knew that he was going to be convicted of a digital penetration charge. Mm. So yeah, that's the long and short, I think, of yeah, I mean, I mean, so that, that was quite clear to me. I think the big question is, first of all, on the court not believing the girl. Yes. I think a lot of people were yeah. outraged at that, right? They were like, oh, you know, how can... We just discussed this just now. We are talking about how, you know, sometimes in a situation where you go through something that's potentially traumatising, yeah. how do you expect somebody to recount something with 100% accuracy, Absolutely. right? I think there were some like lawyers or people who studied law who came to talk about how this was the fault of the, pers- the prosecutor, right? In pressing for rape charges and outrage of modesty charges instead of the digital mm. penetration charges. Mm. So I think it's a challenge. Um, it's hard, but I, I think it also kind of we might want to start also thinking about looking at victims' rights outside from a legal framework in the sense that, or, or rather fundamentally, when you talk about crime, you are mm. really looking at a harm being caused by someone to another person. Mm. And focusing only and solely on punishment assumes also that the harm is, is addressed merely because someone is held accountable. Mm. And of course, I think it's important to hold whoever accountable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the harm is addressed. It doesn't mean that the victims, their feelings of, of harm, their feelings of what has happened, the violence that has caused to them, is okay because someone is punished. Mm. Typically, not always. It's not always the case, and, and we shouldn't assume that that is the case. So I suppose it's it's really also to, how can we put a victim's needs and interests, or how can we move towards addressing their needs, supporting them in that whole process? Why is it that you know even though people were like angry with this particular case and they were going on about like you know there should be a harsher sentence can we appeal to I guess like the outcome was a bit different from when the Terence Yao case happened for instance because his was a very clear incident of you know um, people mm. getting angry with yeah. that particular judgement and then getting it relooked at right so why is there this difference here? So Terence's case he actually pleaded guilty so mm. the only issue really was about the sentence that he should have be given a lot of people were very outraged at his case because they felt that his educational background kind of benefited him in, in obtaining the original light sentence of probation. Terence's educational background was one of the factors which the judge originally took into account in mm. determining that probation was suitable. But on appeal, 
Terence's uh, probation was revoked and instead he was given a sentence of two weeks. Mm. So I think um, on appeal, the, the appeal judge made it very clear um, that the fact the courts are indifferent to your academic, your social and economic status. And when you're dealing with sentencing of offenders, youth offenders, you're not really so much looking at whether or not the person has an academic, uh, a strong academic background or good academic prospects. Mm. What you're really looking for when it comes to young offenders is whether or not they have strong propensity to rehab, mm. to reform, are they genuine in wanting to do that? And is there a support system in terms of their families, mm. external support that can kind of support their rehab mm. efforts? So, so, so just to be very clear, your educational background in and of itself really doesn't, is not a material sentencing factor when mm. it comes to youth offender. The courts are really looking at your capacity um, to change. Mm. So how did they, which means that when the appeal went through, yes. they re-looked at his propensity Correct. to change and decided on what basis that... So I think the main thing was, in Terence's case, um, he had uh, a pornographic obsession, which was a risk factor, which the court found uh, was a material risk factor that could potentially lead to, or was the basis of which his, of why he would offend. On top of also the fact that he grew up in a very conservative, very strict family household where mm. they don't talk about sex at all. Mm. So there were questions as to, you know, externally in terms of family support, were, were there, would there be that support to ensure that he won't re-offend again? Mm. So I think that was kind of some of the reasons why he, he, the probation was not imposed and instead a sentence of two weeks was what the court felt was the appropriate deterrence to ensure and to prevent and to stop him from reoffending again. Mm. Why did he not pick this up on the first time? I think it's, I suppose, because judge making is very human also. I understand, yeah. And um, it really depends also what a court would consider as a relevant material sentencing mm. decision uh, mm. consideration and people, reasonable people can differ mm. uh, as to what is relevant and what is not. Mm. What do you mean by reasonable? I.e. two people with the same set of facts can come to different conclusions. Mm, mm, mm. Um, yeah, and, and that's ju- just the nature of judgmaking and mm. decisions when it comes to cases. Mm. I think one thing that came up in like the Terence Cell case in yeah. particular was that, you know, how the judge made the decision to, in the first place, give that probation sentence, right? And then I read somewhere that the judge would have looked at previous similar cases and offences and then made that particular decision, right? So, was this the case for... So, yes, in Terence's case, the court on appeal, the court did look at other type of cases, similar cases, mm. and what the sentencing benchmark is. Mm. So, it is, um, when it comes to sentencing offenders, it mm. is... One of the goals is also to try to ensure some kind of parity between mm. like cases. Mm. But it also... De- I suppose a lot of the time, sentencing is also really dependent on what happens yep. in that particular situation. Yep. But yes, there is some kind of a sentencing benchmark that, mm. that, that lawyers will will argue about and the judge will also look at. It's very interesting because it feels as if like court has been quite, takes into consideration the 
perpetrator as well. And it feels as if like the victim doesn't really have that way of, I guess, like getting justice. You know, like the only way that they can get justice is through whatever sentence that has been passed in court, right? Yeah, I, I suppose the victim has no voice mm. in a sense in a, in, in a typical justice system. So mm. that's why you have victim impact statements so that the victim also is able to partake in the criminal justice process. Mm. It's um, Of course, the victim does not have a say as to what type of sentence is beaten out, but the harm caused to the victim is something the court takes into account mm. uh, in determining the sentence. So I suppose that is, in some sense, trying to have the victim mm. to, to, to see where they're coming from. Mm. And I, I, I think that is a lot of the time we are not also addressing um, what the victims actually need. Mm. So it's not just about punishing the accused person. It doesn't stop there. The victim continues with his or her trauma. How do we address that? Yeah. So for example, um, there are countries that actually give victims right, for example, by giving them access to information as to, um, for example, what, what, what the police will do with the perpetrator. Are they going to charge mm. them? Um, if they are going to charge them or if they're not going to charge them, the victims have a right to have ex- to, be ex- to, to have an explanation as to why or why not mm. certain decisions are, are not taken. Mm. If, for example, the alleged perpetrator is going to be out on bail, mm. the victim will be informed by the police also. Mm. So you, you, they are very informed in this whole process. We don't have that here in Singapore, mm. but maybe that is something to consider. It's, it's gaining traction, this idea of restorative justice also, uh, where you incorporate elements of it um, in other in other jurisdiction where you have, for example, victim offender mediation. It's of course voluntary, and of course it not all type of cases are suitable so, yeah, for, yeah. for such mediation to take place, but it takes place in a very protective, uh, very uh, structured environment when you have trained personnel where victims are able actually to confront directly with the perpetrator to talk about what can be done, mm. how can we hold the perpetrator accountable. For example, um, is there something that the perpetrator can do, like community work? Mm. How, how can we hold that space? Mm. How can we address what the victim feels mm. uh, in the aftermath of what has happened? And I suppose in some sense, the victim impact statement seeks to do that. Mm-hmm. But I suppose there are alternative ways and more non-traditional um, types of programs or structured environment where we can hold a perpetrator accountable at the same time while he or she is going through the court process. And you're seeing this as something that's important because I guess it's giving the victim some level of like power. Yes, right. I suppose in some sense power also because power has been taken away from you. Mm. And and I think it's the imbalance is even more when you're in a or or it's it, it's very difficult when you are within a very familiar type structure to rebuild that structure. Or that structure is not rebuilt just because the perpetrator is punished. Mm. Yeah. So mm. I suppose we might want to also start thinking a little bit more creatively or more, more, more broad than what we are looking at. Then simply, should we have more severe punishment? Mm. Yeah, mm. I think there's no doubt we need to definitely hold them accountable. But does that really address what mm. the victims feel? 
Mm. A similar incident yeah. happened um, over the weekend. An ex-journalist, basically what he did was that he committed, uh, I think he sexually abused a minor. She was like 15. And eventually, he was sentenced to two years in jail. He served his time. That was back in like 2014. And now he went on to become like a quite an established like author of like a book in Singapore and then quite popular on uh, social media platforms as well for his opinions on like politics and history and everything so um, this individual on Twitter had called him out this girl and she said that you know um, do you know that this guy that you guys have been following is actually somebody who has committed such an offence and what happened was um, she started to say like you know don't follow him because this man is a rapist and basically said some quite defamatory right so it was very interesting because in the end what happened was that he basically told his lawyers to issue a statement to this individual asking her to take down what she said because if she doesn't then they will press charges this ex-journalist had actually served his, served his time already he had apologized to the victim you know he has he cannot take back what he has done but you know he's trying his best and so by I guess like holding him accountable for something that he's really served his time for is not helping like ex-convicts reintegrate in our society. So there are two camps. One camp was that you know like you are are somebody who sees that he has a point. You are a rape apologist because you you clearly don't care about the victim and you know um only somebody who is rich and wealthy could have done what he did to get his lawyers to help him out, right? And then on the other camp, there is, you know, it's true, you know, ex-convicts do deserve a second chance at reintegrating in our society. So I guess the question is, like, at what cost? Like, how do we kind of, like, determine whether or not they have served their time, right? And whether... How do we help them reintegrate into society? I think this is a very big discussion point in the Monica Bay situation Mm. also, right? With, like, Nicholas Lim and everything, so... Well, I suppose it's really about what do we see true accountability, what does true accountability looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone has taken that responsibility, has been punished by the law, is truly apologetic for what they have done, how do we also try to be empathetic in towards them in some sense? Uh, but also, it doesn't mean that um, just because we we are more empathetic towards them that the victim is any less important. It mm. doesn't mean that. That mm. it can be both. You accept and recognize that someone has taken accountability for their actions, but you also accept that their actions have caused harm. Yep. So, so yeah, I, I think it's that ability to hold both together and the ability to recognize true accountability when, when you see it. Mm. Yeah, and I also think shaming someone is not necessarily going to be conducive yeah. to ensuring that someone takes responsibility. Mm. And it would also perhaps be quite bad, uh, detrimental to a victim who or, or people who employ shame mechanism. Mm. You don't get true accountability from that because mm. people are apologizing because they have been shamed, right? They are not apologizing because they recognize and truly understand what they have, the harm that they have caused. Yeah. And if we really want true accountability, then you need to have all these painful discussions yep. and look at how we can seek that kind of accountability. Mm. Because you don't want an apology just because someone might lose a business opportunity if that, that person doesn't apologize. You don't want that type of apology. Mm. Yeah. So I guess to round it up with regards to like the different court cases that have yep. been happening, what would your advice be to like the everyday individual 
when first of all looking at these cases that come out and second of all if they wanted to do more to help mm. well I would say don't un- underestimate your own power as well because I, I, I feel a lot of the time people f- feel the motivation to make a difference when that change is personal to them mm. when they recognise and understand and see uh, what certain things have or they are able to feel that pain personally um I think that is what really uh, how a movement comes about. And usually, change doesn't come because uh, something dramatically happens. It comes because people work at it and chip at it slowly and bit by bit. That's Mm. how you see change come about. So never underestimate your own ability um, to to be part of that movement. Just don't forget you are not alone Mm. in this whole process. There are people out there who can support you in this whole process. And if you've learned something from this episode, to share. Yeah, to share. Because this is, these are important things that we are discussing. Mm. Okay. Thank cool. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. Oh my goodness. <laughs>